Everybody, 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 drop your box. Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Mr. Sean. I'm Mr. Evan. And we are talking about a two-hour episode. Technically, this is two episodes. This is getting confusing, but we have to keep our numbering up for the podcast. So this is Survivor 42, episodes six and seven. They even have their own titles. Episode six is You Can't Hide on Survivor, and episode seven is The Devil You Do or The Devil You Don't. Confusing, because they weren't two episodes. It was one two-hour episode well that and what does the devil you do and the devil you don't mean i've never heard that expression i've heard the devil you know yeah it's funny because when roxbury said that i was like oh he flubbed the quote that's funny and then i go and i look and wow it's the title of the episode okay but it's like are the survivor like producers in on the flub and and that's that they're making a joke of the flub which i would like to believe but i also am not quick to give survivor producers too much credit so i'm just not sure if they were like oh that's just a great quote yeah i'm not buying that they are humorous in any way but i love the duality of uh both knowing and not knowing a devil yeah So what did you think of this big fake merge episode? Of course, last season, we got this split up. And so the first hour was brutal. And the second hour was great. Uh, What did you think of combining the two? I thought it was a really entertaining episode. And I think that one of the biggest changes between 41 and 42 was putting these two episodes back to back, which I think was really important. I think a lot of the reason there was so much pushback last time around was having to wait the full week with the what seemed for many of us like the inevitability that Erica was going to smash smash the hourglass. Um, and then also just I thought the um, the immunity, excuse me, the immunity challenge watching Tori persevere was like really it was a reminder of like the catharsis that comes from watching certain challenges sometimes when it's like, you know, someone's on the block. And so you know, basically had Tory lost, Tory was going home. It was going to be a very obvious vote. And thanks to that win, it not only allowed for a player that I like to advance in the game, but it allowed for more variables in terms of the remaining minutes of the episode. So I just thought a lot of things worked in favor of the narrative. I do think things got a little confusing. Um, There was so much scrambling going on, and I'm still trying to figure out, like, reminding myself who was a part of what tribe originally and who's met up on Shipwheel Island and who knows about each other's immunity idols. There's a little bit of confusion, but I think that happens around a merge. So overall, um, it was a fun and exhilarating at times episode. Where do you stand? Yeah, I really liked it. I thought that this two hour format was great. I almost wish we would see more of it because we got so much time to explore the dynamics and a lot of character building and a lot of strategy, some of which kind of like came to nothing, but I think could be important in the long run. I just think that the more information we have, the better always. And so I thought that just given the format, even compared to last season, it was like, because it was split up into two episodes, they had to follow the format of an episode. And so we lost time doing things, I felt. And 
this just felt like there was more breathing room in the middle portion where we got to see these tribes come together and get to know each other and build one hell of a majority alliance, uh, almost too big. But that was interesting. It's messy. It's not perfect. And it's really fun to see that come together because it's going to be fun to watch it fall apart. And speaking of messy, that bacon burger from Applebee's, I mean, (laughs) it is just one messy burger, um, which we can talk about. But that Applebee's sponsorship got some prime placement in this episode, thanks to Mr. Jeff. So um, that was a real thrill. If you can't get Outback Steakhouse, you get Applebee's. Karishma is quaking somewhere. (laughs) Okay, let's get into the episode, because before the tribes merge, we just get a couple of little snippets, particularly from the blue and green tribes about how they're all going to stick together and they're all going to be a strong for uh, each of these tribes. But we also get a little bit of Tori saying, well, no, that's not true. I'm going to be throwing rocks right under the bus. First chance I get. And Mike is saying, hey, if there's a bullet coming Chanel's way, I'm stepping out of the way. So it's a perfect lead up, I thought, to what is going to be a very chaotic fake merge episode. Yeah, I, I still, I guess with, with, the, with the mic of it all, there was that element of like, well, you voted for Chanel previously, so why would you be so butthurt that Chanel voted for you? But this is one of those moments, and this happens a lot, where like, you're not sure whether or not things are just heated because you're coming back from tribal and come the next morning, everything's fine, or if they're the kind of grudges that actually people hold on to, which I think, you know, I guess that will play out and we'll see. But I just didn't know if it was like Mike in the heat of the moment feeling some kind of way without realizing he did the exact same thing, or if it was the kind of thing that he's going to take with him into the merge and say, hey, she backstabbed me. Yeah, totally. And I don't know what it is about Chanel, whether it was her early alliance with Daniel, who just nobody liked and wanted to get rid of. And maybe that transferred a little bit to Chanel. But the... (laughs) The Chanel hate this episode seemed a little overblown considering, you know, the things that Chanel actually did. I mean, the most interesting thing or the most valid thing maybe I heard was that Chanel had some at some point told Omer that she hadn't risked her vote. And so he was uh, for a period of time under the impression that he would be getting an extra vote uh, from their Shipwheel Island trek. And then that turned out to not be true. And so that was a little shady and like a little bit too much of a a lie that would be easily, easily revealed. Um, So that's really like that I get. But everything else is just people don't like Chanel. And I'm not sure that we've seen enough about why that is or where it's coming from. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to the challenge where we get for the very first time in Survivor 42, Jeff breaking the fourth wall. As I've said before, I think he's been doing this and they've just cut it from the edit based on the reaction to it from last season. But here, I guess they felt they couldn't. And he was like a pig in shit talking to us about how, you know, last season we got Erica smashing the hourglass and this time they're doing it a little bit different. There's some changes this season. First, big important change is that the reward is from Applebee's. I wonder why Applebee's wasn't involved in Survivor 41. It's most curious. Very, very curious. And there is another twist in that they are going to tell the players this time that the person going to Exile Island will gain a power in the game to change the game. And they will offer the winning team the opportunity to sub someone out for that player. So, of course, we get uh, the the 
the, all of the tribes split up into two teams. Two people will not join a team. They'll sit out. And then the winning team will choose one person of the sit-outs to join the winning team, go to the feast, and be quote-unquote merged. And the other will go to exile and gain this power. But they'll be able to swap someone out if they choose. So this is like an interesting way to mitigate the, the complaints, the Danny complaints from last season, in that they're giving them a little bit more information that, yes, one of these people is going to exile, but they will also gain an advantage. I suppose that's true, but I couldn't figure out why they didn't just have everyone participate in the challenge, and then the winning team chooses one of the six people to go to Shipwheel. Or excuse me, to go to this island, because at the end of the day, what did it matter that they sat out if there's the option to sub in anyone? Yeah. So it's like, why not just have everyone participate in the challenge? That's true. That it is just seemed like a, it was like a making things complex for complex sake when it's just like, hey, everyone's competing today. Whoever wins, you collectively will need to pick someone. That person will not get the reward, but they will go to this island where they might find some advantage. Or excuse me, they will find some advantage. Simple as that. Yeah, it's very right. simple. That, so that's how they do Shipwheel Island, right? It's like you won. Now right. pick two people to go. Any two people right. you want. Yeah. So that part was I just thought, and again, this is where it's sort of like we already had some complaints last season about how confusing things are, and then they're adding in. Well, Jeff <laughs> says there's three new elements. There were two, and then Applebee's just wanted to get some <laughs> prime spawn com placement. So somehow that was, you know, brought in as some sort of new twist. Um, but yeah, I definitely thought it was. It seemed a little complicated for complicated sake. Um, but I have to say, this challenge was so entertaining, uh, particularly because of the drama with Drea. It was just like one of those challenges that like felt really really high stakes yeah and it's it's almost the exact same challenge as this point last season except that they've swapped out the puzzle the puzzle they're using is actually the puzzle that erica did in uh the final episode where ricard went home erica had that advantage and did this huge puzzle at the end so they've swapped so they've just like remixed the challenge a little bit uh, mashed them up but I liked seeing this challenge back because I really loved this challenge last season. I just love like how hard it is, how huge that ball is, having to like create the human ladders. And I think it really paid off this season. Absolutely. And I think that in addition to, you know, Mike's role in helping Drea, what I really loved was that ultimately in order to finish things up for that team, they had to deploy Romeo mm. to go down, the seemingly one of the smallest people. So I thought it was so great that while Jeff was really up on highlighting Jonathan and Jonathan's physical prowess, at the end of the day, someone as small as Romeo played a critical part in the challenge as well. And this is my favorite kind of challenge in which it's like being strong and beefy does not necessarily get you a win. And it's one of those rare moments where it wasn't about physical strength or ability to solve a puzzle. It was about a, something as simple as being someone that's easy to lift up, you know, mm -hmm. up and over. So I really liked that level of teamwork in which it's like multiple people played a role in finishing things off. And Romeo helping Drea. Remember Romeo just, was it last week, I think? Pageant coach Romeo. Wanted to lift Drea up uh, to be the best Hello. version of herself. And here he is literally lifting her up. So, hey, that... Something came of that. So our teams are orange, and the orange team is Lydia, Jonathan, Marianne, Tori, and Hi. And we have a blue team that is made up of Omer, Drea, Romeo, Chanel, and Mike. And 
I mean, I think Jonathan did have a big advantage here, just tossing that ball around, and he brings Orange to the very end quite quickly and easily, where Marianne and Lydia start working on the puzzle. Marianne and Lydia's puzzle skills were a little confusing to me, and I think to their tribe mates, because we had Jonathan and Hi trying to be like, turn the puzzle pieces over so you can see the image on them. And I almost thought they were setting us up for like a big comeback from Blue, where Marianne and Lydia were not going to be able to complete the puzzle. But I mean, obviously they did. They had a huge time advantage. But I liked seeing the little dynamic there. I mean, Jonathan's still frustrated with Marianne and the way that she operates. But even Hi got in on it being like, trying to direct the puzzle and Marianne was having none of it. She was like, stop talking to me. I'm doing the puzzle. I liked that. And she pulled it out in the end. So it's kind of like their complaints are all null. And also in those moments, you never know sort of like, again, this connects to what I was saying earlier about like, how much was Mike really bent out of shape about the Chanel vote? It's the same thing of like, how much was Jonathan like just annoyed in the moment? And how much is that the kind of thing that you carry over and bring to a larger conversation about Marianne's always doing blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. How much was it just sort of like, oh, that kind of annoyed me in the moment, but she pulled through. So whatever. You never know like the weight of moments like that, especially when they choose to zoom in on the eye roll Mm -hmm. or choose to like sort of uh, show in the edit those moments of frustration. You always think that, well, that's, potentially some sort of signal about, you know, percolating feelings uh, between the two of them. Well, it's really interesting because Jonathan of like will go on in this episode to throw Marianne's name out, but tell us in confessional that I actually don't want Marianne to go. I think that our tribe can stick together strong. And I want people to think that I'm willing to let Marianne go. And I think these kinds of moments where he's frustrated at her in a challenge, even though they may be real, help to bolster that misdirect uh, in the game. And so actually, I mean, I don't know how much credit to assign to Jonathan for this move, but it's a really subtle move, I think, that you're, you're letting people pick up on your frustration with somebody and then you're using it in a strategic conversation knowing that that's not actually what you want to do. You're just leading people astray. Absolutely. Thought it was smart. For- and that's the kind of thing that you, that's the kind of move uh, that you bring to Final Tribal mm-hmm. as far as sort of building out your case for the your strategic acumen by saying this is the kind of thing, the high level thinking that I was doing early on in the game. Yeah, also Drea trying to get up on that ball, I just thought was brutal to watch. And yeah. her getting kicked in the face, uh, her sort of just almost giving up or just having to take those moments to just lay on the ground and be like, I need to recollect myself. And I couldn't help but think about the Heather moment from 41 and how much of a big deal Jeff made about that Heather moment and how much this was sort of passed over. I thought there was going to be sort of like a post-challenge discussion from Jeff about, you know, the how they implemented teamwork to get the job done and how... Drea and Mike and Roma, how they like sort of they never quit, you know, the, and because, you know, Jeff loves that. And I was surprised that more wasn't made of that moment because from the viewer perspective, it was like a really powerful moment watching her, you know, unable to do to get up that multiple times watching her fail and, and persevere and, you know, watching the rest of the tribe encouraging her. I was surprised that that wasn't, you know, highlighted more from Jeff. Well, especially because she she did it. She managed to overcome yeah. the obstacle and do it. And unlike Heather, she was, I mean, they weren't successful in the challenge, but she was successful in the portion that she was trying to complete. So this is worth right. celebrating. Right. 
Okay. But of course, orange ends up winning. It didn't look like blue had made any significant progress on their puzzle in the end. So it was kind of an easy win for orange. And now they're given this choice. So they have Lindsay and Roxroy who sat out of the challenge and they have to choose one to send to exile and one to join them on the merge feast. They get together and have a little discussion and they turn around and they say, okay, we're choosing Lindsay because she looks like she needs to eat. I guess this is better than last season when they said they played rock, paper, scissors, but I'm not sure that it's great. I mean, I don't know. We we know that Tori was on this winning team and she wanted Rocks Roy at Exile. It's just very confusing because then Jeff says, well, as you know, Rocks Roy is going to go to Exile, but if you want, one of you can take his place. And he's reiterating, there is a game-changing power at Exile Island. I don't get how they can hear Jeff say that and not volunteer somebody because it's not like their strategy was, oh, well, we're all aligned with Roxroy and we're comfortable giving him this power in the game. Maybe it'll make him a target. Maybe people will get mad at him for something. No, they're just like, we don't like Roxroy. He's going to exile. I mean, the only thing that I, I mean, I feel the same way. The only thing I can think is people being weary about being absent during the merge Mm -hmm. and, you know, the idea that strategy can be playing out in real time. But to your point, it's like, well, then why not send someone in your alliance that you're sort of, that you know you're good with versus someone like Roxroy who, you know, people aren't really sure where Roxroy stands, where his loyalty lies. Yeah, I thought it was really, at the very least, odd that we didn't get more of a the consideration of the option to send one of them. It seemed very much cut and dry, like we know exactly what we're doing. And not for nothing, Jeff really seemed to emphasize the fact that like this was a game-changing power. It, it, it was very clear to me, if I were in the game, it was not an immunity idol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It was uh, clearly something that was unique. Now, the fact that Drea figured out exactly what it was, I thought was funny just from the perspective of the producers. Like, It's like they seem to be outsmarted. Um, but I always enjoy that. So we didn't talk about how Jeff talked about the Applebee's. But I have a voice memo about it that I'd like to play. Hello, Sean and Evan. This is Natasha from Detroit. Okay, so let's talk about the most earth-shattering, riveting, game-changing part of tonight's episode, Apple Bees. Are you freaking kidding me? Um, I'm still not over Jeff describing it as a taste of home either. Like, a taste of home for who exactly? Uh, based on the cast reaction, apparently everyone, uh, especially Mike. So granted, the Applebee's food actually looked 100 times better than the usual like sad cardboard pizza that they offer during reward challenges. Personally, I cannot think of anything I'd want to eat less in this whole entire world than a damn quesadilla burger. Hard pass, hard pass. So my question to you both is, if you were competing on Survivor and they offered a restaurant chain reward, which chain and which menu items are you choosing? Awesome. Thanks, guys. Love you. Bye. I'm obsessed with this question. Yeah, thank you, Natasha. Um, Well, that's easy for me. I am going for Cheesecake Factory without question, and I want the fried macaroni and cheese, and I want the uh, lettuce wraps, and I probably want their factory burger thrown in, and I'm going to add, they do like a combination of like a mozzarella, it's not Gouda, there's some like combo cheese that they do that I would throw on top and maybe some caramelized onions. What about you? 
Mr. I've never had Cheesecake Factory before. Well, it wasn't in Canada Canada? for the longest time. It it wasn't for the longest time. And then we got a location in Toronto, but it's like, it's, it's not downtown. So you'd have to make a trip to go there. And I'm curious, but I'm not making a trip to go to Cheesecake Factory. Well, I will just say I went across state lines uh, just last (laughs) week to go to Cheesecake Factory for my birthday. I went into New Jersey, um, crossed, I live in Brooklyn. So I crossed into Manhattan and then crossed into New Jersey um, because it was that important to me. So I, I understand uh, the idea of like the excitement over a chain. I don't think Applebee's is that girl for many people. Um, So that was odd. And let me just ask this too, with regards to quarantine and, you know, needing to go down to 26 days, there were multiple Applebee's employees that were shown Mm. uh, serving the food. And I'm just kind of wondering, were those actual Applebee's employees? Were they flown in from the States? Are they too quarantining for two weeks in order to bring out this food? I just thought... Being that we've changed up so much of the format, this season feels very like COVID, I don't know her, um, in comparison to 41. Couldn't one of them have taken Jackson's spot at the last minute? Why not? Okay. Well, no, it sounds like I have to go to the Cheesecake Factory because maybe I just don't know what I'm missing. It's the devil you do versus the devil you don't. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Next time (laughs) you're in New York, I will take you to the Cheesecake Factory. In New Jersey. Well, there's also one in Queens, but it's about equidistant oh. for me. So we can, we can, we'll see. We'll see which one we're okay, feeling nice. that day. Um, but we've got two here. I have to say my very favorite chain restaurant is a Canadian restaurant. And I don't think a lot of people know about it because I actually just tweeted about it like last week. And I got a response about how somebody had never heard of it and looked at the menu. And it's called Swiss Chalet. It is a rotisserie chicken place so you get their their standard item is rotisserie chicken it comes with you get a chicken plate it comes with a quarter chicken french fries or potatoes or whatever you want and then the piece de resistance is the chalet sauce so it comes with a dipping sauce it's called chalet sauce you can literally buy packets at the grocery store to make your own chalet sauce it's the showstopper of the meal i can't even describe it it's like a gravy but so much more and so i would love to see now that we have canadians on survivor let's get a little canadian product placement in there so i Mm. think that swiss chalet could really really take off maybe they they could move into the states if they if they showed up on survivor that's that would be my ideal meal like that's when i that makes me think of home Mm. (laughs) okay so they go to the applebee's reward well, and, I did just want to mention really yeah. quick before they before they did that because I don't mean to sound like Megan McCain here, but I did not love that the consolation prize was given to the other tribe. Um, first of all, they were said that they were going to get a cup of rice. It seemed like they got quite a bit of rice because they all seem to have individual cups of rice. But mm-hmm. this just to say, in my mind, I don't know. Call me a traditionalist, but you lost the challenge and you don't get the reward. And I just thought it was a little odd of Survivor after 41 seasons to suddenly be offering consolation prizes. Or at the very least, it's like, I didn't want to see that in the edit. Like, I don't want to know that. I just was sort of like, I wanted more of an understanding about like why on this particular challenge, is it that they've noticed that people are a little bit more depleted in challenges than usual? Or like, what was the onus 42 seasons in to suddenly and midway through the season to introduce a consolation prize. 
So they did do this in season 41. It was ah. like the losing team got to go back to camp and there would be rice for them. I think that it's just the fact that they haven't eaten anything, right? They've had maybe Welcome fish. Survivor. Um, but they had, also, they've had nothing. Seemed, and I think like a little bit of rice is fair. I don't though, but it's because like cut to later in the episode where Jonathan, they're picking over rocks and crabs are coming out and they got the octopus. And it's like, this is again, going back to my confusion about the show. It's like, are they starving? Or then you also had like Roxroy on the island by himself, just cracking open a coconut and, you know, putting some coconut over his rice. I just, it's hard to know how much they're really starving. And especially because it's a consolidated schedule. So it's like, they're only having to quote unquote starve for 26 days versus it's 39. It's day 12 here. Yeah. Day 12. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I found that a little bit confusing, but like you said, yeah. I guess they've you know what? Before, I think but... it could have been pitched as like, well, it's the merge. We're not doing a traditional merge feast. Half of that. you are going to get rice. That will be your merge feast. And the other half will get Applebee's. Yeah. That's how they could have pitched it instead of as a consolation prize. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go to Applebee's. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say here, except that Tori starts blabbing and she's talking shit about Roxroy. She's just blowing up the whole blue tribe game and revealing everything, basically being like, I'm a free agent. Work with me. And this was such a bummer for me as a Tory fan to see her just get so fast and loose with her gameplay. I understand the strategy of wanting to appear like a free agent, but the fact that she did that in front of everyone versus using that feast to kind of have some one-on-one conversations in which she forms bonds with people and makes them feel like she's opening up to them by revealing the fact that she's willing to flip. Like her, her method of going about it was so awful to me. And my sense was from the early episodes, I was like, wow, Tori really understands the the manipulation that has to happen in this game. And then this episode comes up and I'm just like, wow, Tori, like, I can't really get behind her gameplay. It was just, it was so reckless. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I wanted to point out here is how they make them sit at this feast, which is so unnatural and weird. Like it looked like the Last Supper where they're all sitting at a long table facing, for, it's like in on the drag race judge panel where you know when they're they're giving their critiques after the girls are off the stage and they're talking to each other but they have to look forward and not turn their heads to each other it was very that and it's a very unnatural way for people to interact the first time that they're having a conversation so i thought that that was odd but i guess it's easier to film okay back at camp we are going to the vati camp that is the merge camp and We don't have a merge name because we're not merged, I guess. Chanel is gooped that they're not getting a merge feast and they are cooking the entire bag of rice. Romeo is thrilled about it because he says that they could have had a bag of doo-doo and he would have been happy. And this is really interesting because Drea calls out the twist while they're making rice where she says, well, what, who knows? He could come back and say he got to switch it and that we're not, that, that, they're not immune anymore, and we are. And this is the one, the first of two people. I think Jonathan also suggests this could be the twist uh, further down the line. So really interesting to see how they've picked up on this. And I think that for people that hated the twist last season, this at least made it a little bit more less jarring because it was like, you know, I remember last season... Oh, what's his name? The guy that hated the twist last season. Yeah, Stanny was so angry about it. And it's like, at least it felt like with this season, they weren't so sidelined. Like they were anticipating this possibility so that 
because I think one of the disappointing things was when they found out that this was indeed the case, you didn't really get those shocked reactions. High almost seemed like sure that this was the case. Like he mm-hmm. was like not only like prepared for anything, he was prepared for that very scenario. So in that sense, I think it made it easier for the audience to deal with it because it was like, well, they're not really thrown off by this. So why should we be? Yeah. And we also see Drea taking the opportunity of the rice cooking to form a bond with Mike over their Beware Idols, because of course, Drea, Mike, and Marianne all have Beware Idols, and they would all know that each other have them. So she tells him, hey, I'm with Romeo and Roxroy, and Mike says, I'm with High and Lydia, and we can watch each other's backs, and he tells Drea to be careful of Chanel. She says, good to know. That's sort of the first we get the throwing under the bus of Chanel. So let's go over to Exile Island where Roxroy arrives. He gets a pot, machete, flint, and rice, which I believe are all the same things that Erica got last season. But also the hourglass is there, which I think last season Jeff brought the hourglass, if I'm not mistaken. So he just has to ponder. I don't know what this is, but I'll just leave this. And I thought we got the, a really great sequence with Roxroy on Exile because we talk about how he has a condition where he is likely to go blind at some point in the future. And so he's taking in the sights of Fiji here and kind of just like being away from it all, being away from the game, being away from his nagging wife. And yeah, that was that sure yeah, was something. That was something. And uh, it just felt like he was, uh, like like Erica last season, he was very much in his Janu era of going to exile and thriving. Yeah, I mean, I have to give him credit in the sense of like, this felt like one of those stories about strife that made sense with the narrative, right? Because it's Mm. like, he's not just mentioning the fact that he might go blind for the sake of mentioning it. He's mentioning mentioning it because it's connected to his experience in that moment and him literally enjoying the Fijian Islands. And I also just, I too sometimes I'm like, wow, we don't really get a lot of uh, moments of them appreciating the fact that like they're not, they're Mm. on a beautiful island in Fiji. This is very different than the Australian outback or or Africa. Well, Africa's different because they had all those beautiful animals, but there have been past seasons where the place that they're set is like, they're in the middle of just the jungle or in the middle of nowhere, right? And it's like, yes, they're on, yeah, exactly. They're on the beaches of Fiji. And when you are able to go up to the top of these hills or these mountains, what have you, yeah, you get these beautiful vistas. So I both appreciated the narrative about, you know, him sharing his story because I thought it was relevant to the scene, but also too, just we don't often get these moments. Uh, We have in the past sometimes, but we don't get them as often about people just appreciating the beauty of where they are. Yeah. Let's stay on Exile and talk about when Jeff showed up in his little boat and explain the twist (laughs) in his yacht and so he comes to roxroy and he tells him uh, first he's like where's that hourglass can't find the hourglass can't find the mallet okay but they sort that out jeff's never leaving those there again for the player to find the he so he tells him the sand represents the time that has passed You can leave it the way it is, or you can reverse the results of the challenge by smashing the hourglass. And we see Roxroy kind of like weighing the pros and cons. He says the cons are that people will be pissed. People lost fair and square. And if he doesn't smash smash it, then he's vulnerable at tribal. Uh, Drea and Romeo are his allies, and they will also be vulnerable. 
and Tori is safe right now and he can make her vulnerable. So, I mean, I still think that there is no choice in this. I really believed that they might change this so that either way the person going to exile would be vulnerable or either way they're safe. If you took away that option, then it actually be, does become a choice about who is safe right now, who is not, who I, who do I want to protect, who do I not want to protect. And if you're in the mix of that, either going to be safe or unsafe, of course you're choosing safe, especially being away from the tribe for two days. Right. And the thing I just couldn't get past, I know we discussed this last season, I'm sure this has been discussed at nauseum on other pods, but why is it an hourglass? And then on top of that, at the very least, at least just flip the hourglass over while you're having Mm -hmm. a discussion. But like the putting the hourglass on the side like that connected to, I I just, I want to know again, Jeff in the garage and the whiteboard, where where did we come up with this hourglass? Why did we think we would never actually flip the hourglass? And like, in what world is it like, yes, you're going to set the hourglass, which is not currently, there's no sand moving through it. You're going to set it on its side. It would have made sense if he flipped it over during the discussion and then set it on his side midway through to be like, you have the opportunity to stop time, essentially, right? Like stop the sands from moving. But the sands were never moving. Or like, let's turn the hourglass over say there's 30 minutes in it, you have to make your decision by the end. You smash it or you don't. Right. There you go. But you make use of the hourglass in some way. Right. And we've had the same discussion about the shot in the dark about just like, it's it. Why why do we, why is it this, you know, dice and, but we're actually utilizing, you know, same thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back and see what's happening at camp because the Applebee's crew is returning. And so everybody, save for Roxroy, is essentially merging. And we've got a lot going on here. Lindsay is eager to reconnect with the amulet holders. And so we do get this scene of Lindsay, High, Andrea getting together. I think High plays this in a really interesting way where he says, oh, yeah, like the first time I read that clue with the amulet, it was so obvious that it's designed for us to try to take each other out. But actually, that's not the best way to play this. And I'm not sure that I was convinced by his argument, but I thought it was like a valiant effort to try to diffuse that situation of having two people trying to come against you just from the get-go to be like, wait, how? Let's, let's sit down and figure out how can we use this together. Yeah, but it's like, it's such an inconsequential power. What mm-hmm. I, what I could have wrapped my mind around more is if like, yes, you go in the three of you, you fake it so that like, yeah, the three of us are together. Then you pull one of those two aside and say, hey, I'm in with mm. this three, but when when the time comes, you're my quote unquote final two in this situation because you need to make a sub-alliance within that three because there's going to come a time in which you might need that steal a vote instead of an extra vote. It's right. It's an extra vote's the first thing, right? Extra vote, yes. Extra vote, extra, yeah. steal a vote. So I just idol. was surprised that the sort of like everyone was just, it was uh, peace and love and harmony and no one sort of had the thought of like, except for high on the confessional, but no one had the, the moment in real time where it's like, yeah, it's all love and hugs and kisses and puppies right now, but like things can change on a dime. What if the amulets, what if it was reversed? What if they're most powerful together? What if it's an idol when you use the three of them together? Well, that's fun because then it's like you're forced into an alliance, which I love. 
Yeah, I like that. And then there's disincentive. There's incentive to keep people from other tribes because it's obvious to target somebody who's not in your tribe, right? That's right. that's the natural order of survivor. Whereas if you have incentive to keep people from each of the other tribes, that becomes more interesting. Right. Okay. So take note, Jeff. Put it on the whiteboard. So Marianne is making connections all over the place. And she talks about my favorite strategy on Survivor, my very favorite thing to see, which is that when you come up with a plan, you want to have a way of getting somebody else to vocalize that plan so that you are getting your way, but the target is not on you. And we didn't see her do this, but the fact that she said it in confessional, I thought was notable because it's such an important piece of gameplay that I think people often overlook because I think there's a lot of focus on getting credit for stuff, but you can take that credit when you're at the final tribal council. That said, I agree with you. I also think a lot of people deploy this strategy without knowing they're deploying this strategy, like without the mm. effort to do it. They just naturally in their head are like, wait, I'll have them think that they came up with it without that being like the sort of... Uh, you know, ahead of the planning and sort of the um, puppeteering, but I do think that we see this strategy. Yeah. So Mike and Jonathan also we see bonding, and we need to talk about this because we need to talk about this. they are bonding over being big guys, and it's a hard life. I only see one big guy in this conversation. <laughs> I mean, Mike is a big guy. He's, he's, he's not Jonathan. He is not Thor-like, but he's a big guy. When you look at the cast of Survivor 42, fair. Mike does stand out. I do want to mention, and this is, I think, like a larger discussion to have at some point, but I think the way in which Mike has managed to not have his age be a consideration at all, like mm. Mike has boxed himself in into like the big guy group versus the old man group. And I just mm. think that it's so often, we've had these conversations about like when certain older women come on the show and become the mother, whether that's thrust on them or they go in there, you know, wanting that that for themselves. But I just think it's interesting how Mike's been very successful in not having his age play into this at all. And rather he's seen as sort of like on the level of Jonathan where there could easily be young people coming along being like, we don't want that old man, but that hasn't been a part of the conversation at all. Yeah, in fact, Roxroy has taken up that position as the grumpy old man. Right. Which is interesting. I just think that Mike, I think Mike has an incredible social game. And the fact that he managed to survive in the way that he did on Vati, despite being kind of like on the outs after the Jenny vote, like he really bounced back from that. Now Chanel's on the outs. And he aligned himself with High and Lydia, who on paper he should have nothing in common with, but they are really tight with him. And I just think, and then seeing him bond with Jonathan, like to, to be the first person we see go to Jonathan and be like, we have this thing in common, let's stick together. Because of course, if Jonathan goes home, maybe that big guy target goes straight onto Mike. And he, I'm sure, knows that. I'm sorry. I just I don't see my. I know you. I know. I understand. I don't see Mike as big guy. Like that just not is not how he reads. <laughs> to I just think that is a very odd read of Mike. Mike to me, I get sort of like older gentleman who yes used to be a firefighter and I'm sure is has some physical prowess, but I don't see him as like a second in command. I I don't know. That's just it's odd to me that like 
that felt a little bit like him projecting in some way. Cause even mm. if he was younger, I just don't think he's like the Zeus like figure that is Jonathan. I don't think Mike like shares that in common, but I thought this whole conversation was just like a bit LOL. And like, I mm-hmm. wanted some like rinky dinky music under it because I just was like, it, it it is so funny because it's a reminder of how many people move through this world thinking that they come from struggle. And I have to say, I, I'm not exonerating myself in this conversation. I think I grew up often thinking that I had it a lot worse until later in life when I came to understand some of the inherent privileges I had as a white man moving through this world. But it's just funny to watch these two straight white men connecting over the fact that they are sort of like these underdogs because people have make, you know, have a perception of them before they get to know them. It's like, welcome to the fucking world. Everybody has perceptions or opinions about who they think other people are often based on appearances. And more often than not, those judgments are incorrect. That's that's living in the world. Like welcome. Yeah. Now just to correct, Mike is not white. I apologize. Mike is not white. You're right. But the conversation around how hard it is, how what a lonely life it is to be a big guy, muscly guy. And wouldn't it be great if just for once in Survivor history, a strong guy could win? Right. Oh, yeah. LOL. <laughs> I, I, I will say, though, I did not walk away from that conversation thinking that they were having the moment that I think Mike thought they were having. To yeah. me, it seemed like Jonathan certainly was connecting with Mike, but I feel like Mike really was having sort of, I couldn't tell though, were you getting like a father-son dynamic and they just weren't saying it? Because I again, we again, like Mike has really managed to like not have age be a part of the conversation in his narrative, but it seemed a bit, a little bit like that he was taking on a fatherly role with Jonathan, but I didn't get the impression that Jonathan was having this like overwhelming connection with Jonathan as much, excuse me, with Mike, as much as Jonathan was just like having a nice moment with somebody else on the beach. Yeah, I saw it more from that perspective. I didn't really see the fatherly approach by Mike. I just felt like it was two guys. Like I felt like it was a stretch. And I feel like they both knew it was a stretch to a certain extent, but they went along with the conversation anyway. I mean, the conversation itself was embarrassing, in my opinion. And the fact that Survivor presented it in the way they did, as if it was a heartwarming, touching moment, is trash. Because So I was messaging with one of our listeners, Keith from Nairobi, who we've heard from before. And he pointed out to me, remember Survivor Amazon? Remember how Heidi, Jenna, and Shauna talked about how hard it is to be young, beautiful women with great bodies moving through this world and the judgments you have placed on you. This is exactly the same conversation that Mike and Jonathan had. And in Survivor Amazon, it was very much shown to us in a way of aren't these conceited, vain, young women, complete morons. And here... I mean, I, granted, it's many seasons later, but I, I, I am not giving them the benefit of the doubt that they have changed their approach in terms of these kinds of conversations. I think that it's specifically because they were women and these are men, and it is pitched in such a sickeningly heartwarming way that yeah. I found it very off-putting. Yes, I think that is uh, a very good point to bring up. And also, not for nothing, like... There seemed to be this conversation, this idea that, like, they were both so strong that they had a hard time moving through the world. And it's like, 
Don't get me wrong. I know Jonathan's a bigger guy. We've had many guys that look like Jonathan on this show before. And I see many Jonathans in real life every day when I walk down the street. It's not like Jonathan's like seven foot eight. You know, it's not like Jonathan is like so big that clothing doesn't fit on his body like normal. It's just (laughs) odd that they talk about them as though they are like these huge outliers in the world. And it's like, I've seen, you get a Jonathan pretty much every season on this show. It just was odd. And it's like, first of all, the James erasure, I will not. Um, Mm. But yeah, it's just odd that they they act like this is the first time they've had someone this athletic on the show. And it's like, "Mm, I can pull up quite a few receipts. Yeah. Totally. But everybody's loving Jonathan. It's interesting because I think it's uh, he's very clearly in the position of being a meat shield, which is not a bad position for him to be in because I think he's smarter than the average meat shield. And so it's actually working out quite well for him where it could have gone one of two ways, the meat shield direction or get him out because he's going to prevent all of us from winning individual immunities. Everybody seems to want him as a meat shield. And we see Hi go and tell Jonathan about how he would be willing to go to rocks for him, just like he did for Lydia. And so trying to really solidify a bond with him. And, uh, you know, we're going to see a huge alliance come together. Jonathan's sort of central to uh, all permutations of that alliance, even though some will target him in the vote that will come. But, I mean, it's not, it's just not an issue for him. Yeah, so... There's also a ton of character building stuff here, which I just really, really loved. We get uh, Omer talking about how he's saving himself for marriage. It's giving Josh and Reed in San Juan del Sur. (laughs) We have Marianne and Lydia vibing as the youngins with old grandma names, which I loved. And then we have the story of how High met his boyfriend, which is that he was on a dating app called i mean tinder and he saw some photos that were blurry and didn't have faces in them and well first of all let's pause here to talk about this because he was not on tinder i'm sorry but i was not on tinder and it's really interesting to see here because there's a moment as he's telling the story and i think like we as gay people have been in this situation where it's like okay you know, oh, how, how do you guys know each other? Well, then you have to make this decision in your head of like, okay, do I want to explain to a straight person what Grinder is? Or can I just use something a little more generic that everybody's going to understand? And that's what I felt like was going on here because realistically, like, yeah, some of them are going to know what Grinder is, but everybody knows what Tinder is. And so you're just trying to get this story out. We met on a dating app. Fine. He was clearly going to say Grinder, And as as many people pointed out on Twitter, it's like, on t- I've never used Tinder. I've used Grindr, but I haven't used Tinder. And that to, to message somebody on Tinder, you have to have matched, right? So he's talking about how he couldn't even see who was in these pictures, but was messaging them. And so they're like, well, wait a second. If, if that's the case, then he swiped, which way do you swipe? Left, if you like them? Right. Swipe right. And he's like, so you swiped right on a blank profile with blurry pictures, if that's the case. So it doesn't add up. doesn't add up. And I just feel, and I tweeted this out, and that we really got robbed of somebody saying Grinder on Survivor, which would have been certainly a milestone in the show's history. But... 
we didn't get it. But High is defending the fact that he meant Tinder. He 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 is doubling down on that. I thought, if anything, I just thought it was an odd story because there wasn't a story there. Yeah. It was like the story was just <laughs> that he met his husband. The picture was blurry, and that was the story. It was like it was. I thought it was supposed to lead somewhere, and it didn't. Yeah. We never landed. It was. A I mean, where it, and, where it led was that in telling the story, Romeo was dazzled by this gay man just talking openly about his big gay life. And so Romeo then pulls high aside and they have this conversation about how like Romeo's gay. He's out to some people. He's not out to everybody. And he doesn't feel as comfortable uh, in the area that he grew up. Uh, it <sighs> does, it's not, he feels it's not as accepted. Plus with it, like some of his traditional family, he just can't tell them or he feels that he can't tell them. And so they have this conversation about being gay and being yourself. And Romeo says one of his biggest uh, concerns about coming on the show, one of his biggest questions was, do I want to reveal my whole self on this show and then have to go back and face my family and friends and feel like I may have disappointed them? What did you make of this whole conversation? Well, I don't want to be insensitive um, because I think everyone has their journey uh, in life and especially queer people with, you know, their sexuality or gender identity and who they want to disclose that to and when. I will say, though, he is a pageant coach. He is not a coal miner. And so, one, I think that the family might might speculate. Also, he made it clear the fact that he is out to parts of his family. So it's not as though he is living a closeted life. I also have to imagine in the pageant world, you're also interacting with a lot of gay people. I was surprised by the energy that he was bringing forward with High. It felt very like Survivor season, like an early season where it was like, oh my gosh, I'm meeting a gay person who's able to live an out and proud life and I'm not able to. But like, I have to imagine in the pageant world, like Romeo is living a life as an out gay man. And if he's not, he's chosen an interesting field to work in, um, to be closeted in. So I guess I just was curious to know more about Romeo and his life. Um, I, I, it's it's so I, I yeah it left me with a lot of questions about his life, um, and also it's I and this isn't the first instance of this, but it's odd to come on a reality tele- television series that's broadcast in countries all over the world when you have something about yourself that you're not comfortable sharing, and yet you're sharing it um you're you're choosing to do something very public which again your choice your journey but for me it's always one of those things of like um there's a famous meme or a moment from the real housewives of beverly hills with eileen davidson where she's talking about like the sort of the dichotomy of housewives which is like i don't want to talk about this thing but i'm going to talk about this thing and it felt very much like that where it's like okay um but, but, you know, then again, uh, he maybe went on there not expecting to talk about it and was moved by being around high. So I can definitely hear myself listening to me talk right now and think that, hey, you're being really insensitive to uh, his lived experience. So that's sort of where I netted out on it. What about you? Yeah, I felt like we talk about this often. Is is this a story we've seen before, right? And yes, we have seen this story before on Many, many shows, movies, books, whatever, right? This this story is not a new story. I will say it's it's not even really a new story for Survivor, if you look it's at not. Millennials versus Gen X. Right. But it did feel special 
in a way to me. And I did feel that I started out the scene feeling very cynical about it, where I kind of had the same feelings that you did. And by the end of the scene, and I think it was due to the editing, (laughs) I really sympathized with Romeo. And I thought, wow, this is like a really nice moment between these two gay men who are living different lives at the moment. And one of them having to come in. And and I could put myself in Romeo's shoes where you're like, I am going on a, you know, national, international almost TV show where I am going to reveal this to everybody. That's a scary thing, but I want to do this. And this is an opportunity for me to do this. It's an opportunity for me to be on this show and play this game that I love, but also to reveal myself to people in a way that's like a little bit more passive in that I don't have to like sit down and tell them and they can just learn who I am and I can deal with it when I'm back and when this airs and just kind of having to like think through that and then having another gay man of a similar age and uh, but of different experience to bounce that off of I thought it was I thought it was nice that it was touching nice but not for nothing because you made the millennials versus gen x comparison I think that moment with Brett and Zeke is so powerful largely because of Zeke's reaction to it and the compassion that Zeke has and I just felt like in watching this I don't like high seemed very um I don't want to say cold but I wouldn't say it was like an especially warm reception that high had to it it didn't feel like the scene partner was as engaged in the scene um that was just my read of it and again I, I could be wrong but I just didn't feel like we the scene fully rose to its potential because I don't think high uh was moved in any way or you wanted that moment of high being like thank you for telling me this I have your back now in this game you know what I mean like one of those sort of like closing the loop on like now that you've shared this with me let me bring you into this alliance that I'm building and it just didn't happen like you get the sense that and maybe this is to High's credit where like he's keeping himself uh, he's keeping the game front of you know front and center always for him but it just didn't seem like a the moment like had that sort of like you want that like final shot of them from behind leaning on each other staring off into the sunset and like we didn't have that moment right i almost wonder whether gameplay played a factor in this conversation because we don't know what order this happened in of course we saw this before we see the alliance form but romeo very surprisingly to me is not included in this alliance this huge majority alliance even though drea is instrumental right. in putting it together she puts roxroy above romeo who i thought was her number one right and it's like why wouldn't you because correct me if i'm wrong but didn't the other two tribes have three people each within the alliance because it's an eight right yeah. so it's three three two so by drea not including romeo she's putting her and roxroy in theory as the bottom two within the alliance if they tend if they in some way revert back to the original alliances wouldn't you want to make it an even three 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 yeah unless you see i mean there's a lot of potential being uh in the lower numbers in an alliance like that because you can be you look up. at san juan del sur to mention that again how uh jacqueline and her boyfriend oh my god i love them <laughs> i can't remember his name either jacqueline and, were um, able to play that critical swing vote on mo- many many occasions and if you have three three and two well, that's perfect like you get to decide at least one or two votes if you're in that position. Right. I'm Googling. That's going to bug me. Jacqueline I know. And Jacqueline and John. John. Yes. I mean, what a forgettable name. John with no H. <laughs> okay. 
So let's talk about this alliance then because it's kind of confusing because there's a couple versions that come together and I'm not entirely clear on really who's in it. But we definitely have Hydrea, Lydia, Jonathan, Drea's putting Roxroy in it, Omer's in it, Mike is in it. I think Marianne's supposed to be in it at some point. I'm missing somebody, but it was quite confusing, I will say. But they're making these alliances, and not not everybody is in the conversation. People are getting put in alliances. I mean, Roxroy's on exile. He's getting put in the alliance. I think Jonathan mentions, like, oh, like, I'm not very close with Marianne, but secretly he wants her in the alliance. So actually, maybe she's not in it. Um, is there any other cases like that? Hi, Lydia, Mike. No, I think I think that's it. And then in this discussion, High's making an early pitch to get Chanel out. And Drea's also taking the opportunity to throw Tori under the bus. So kind of like each tribe is is sort of throwing a name out there. It's almost like a gesture of goodwill to be like, look, well, we're, we're happy to get Chanel out. We're happy to get Tori out. And Jonathan says, we're happy to get Marianne out. Now, the Chanel and Tori pitches are genuine. And we hear Jonathan say, like, I'm putting Marianne out so people feel comfortable that we're willing to give up one of our tribe members. But actually, I don't want her going anywhere, which I thought was really interesting. Again, like another strategic moment from Jonathan that surprises me every time. (laughs) Chanel, there's a couple of moments here where Chanel walks up on these groups of people pulling together alliances and they just play it so badly where she comes up and they try and high tries both times he's like chanel's coming switch the conversation to fishing that was quite expert but then it's like they weren't able to sustain the comfort the fake conversation and so they just break off and chanel's like something's going on here she talks to lydia lydia's like we definitely weren't making an alliance that's not we were definitely not doing that so Chanel's spidey senses are going off. But then there's another conversation, again, where they're pulling this alliance together. Chanel walks up. High once again goes, Chanel's walking up. We can't do what we did last time. We can't We can't just split up. And I'm sure this was a trick of the editing because it just was too awkward where Chanel comes up. They have nothing to talk about. And then everyone goes, okay, let's go. I've, I've got something to do. One other thing interesting here that happens is that Omer reveals this thing about how he is not going to have an extra vote. And they talk about how he was sort of deceived by Chanel on that from their trip to Shipwheel Island. But in the process, Drea, I think to like solidify her place in the alliance and, you know, as a gesture of trust to her alliance members says, it's okay that you don't have an extra, it's okay that you don't have a vote at the next tribal council because I have an extra vote and I'm willing to play it. So I felt like that was like a split decision, split moment decision. And I don't know that it was the right decision to make. I mean, Drea probably feels comfortable because she's survivor rich and she has this amulet. She has a beware idol. She has an extra vote. And she's like, I I can like toss out the least valuable of those as a gesture of goodwill. But I don't know that it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I could see the value in doing it, but I don't think she was in a position in which she needed to offer Mm -hmm. that up. But I also understand the perspective of, look, I want to further ingratiate myself with these people. And also I can understand too, like I could tell from her expression, they were really bonding just as human beings. And like, it was just an exciting thing to be like, you know, to offer that up and and see the excitement on everyone's faces. Um, I will say this 
part of the episode for me was where things sort of fell apart in terms of my interest just because it got a little too I wasn't able to follow what was going on mm-hmm. and sometimes that happens and I'm like gripped but this was one, this was one of those times where there were too many variables it wasn't consequential enough of a vote for me to really try to engage and I just was like I have no idea what's happening um, at all I thought it was much more interesting when it came down post immunity challenge where it came down to the strategy of having to vote for one of four four people I believe and where it was like the vote was constantly shifting. I thought that was much more interesting. And I don't know that we needed to know, have like multiple scenes about, okay, wait, who's in this eight-person alliance and who's in, who's out, who's pretend in, who's pretend out. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I mean, I loved seeing this. I think it would hold up better on a rewatch than on a first watch where you've seen the result of the vote and you can try to try to figure out, okay, well, who, what, what was the truth here and who's involved? But on the first watch, it definitely was like, I'm losing track. I, I still have lost track. I can't name the eight people in the Alliance right now. So let's go to the immunity challenge where Roxroy returns from exile. Jeff reveals the twist and obviously Roxroy smashed the hourglass. No surprise there. But what's interesting here is that Tori, our chaotic queen is like, pissed and so she's having the danny reaction this season and she's going uh keep in mind we sent you to exile knowing that you would get a power and how dare you use that power against us that was a very confusing argument to make and again to do it publicly in front of everyone i just Mm -hmm. made no sense yeah he feels some kind of way about it fine but you don't need to discuss it and also to do it in front of jeff too it's like this is not the time not the place Totally. And so we have with the results of the previous challenge overturned, we have Jonathan, Lindsay, Hi, Lydia, and Marianne, and Tori playing for immunity here. They're playing that old game where you're balancing blocks to spell the word immunity on a platform while holding onto a rope and going back and forth. Fine. I did think it was kind of a riveting challenge because you had so many people in the lead and then just dropping off unexpectedly. And Jonathan, very interestingly, not great at this challenge, something that required him to be nimble and quick and steady. Uh, he was not able to do it. In fact, he like was really not able to do it. And ultimately, worst case scenario for everybody, Tori takes the win. Her first time getting immunity, as I saw many people point out on Twitter, the only time she's getting immunity lately because she's an anti-vaxxer. Uh, so. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Then she can go. Yeah. So, okay. Chaotic queen wins. And Jonathan, Lindsay, hi, Lydia, and Marianne are vulnerable at Tribal tonight. So let's go back to camp where Roxroy is catching up on what he missed. And luckily for him, Jonathan tells him, hey, Drea put you in a majority alliance. Don't worry. Great. Perfect scenario for Roxroy. He's safe and he's in a majority alliance. Romeo's going to Tori and like Romeo's coming out here in more ways than one because he's very animated, the most animated I've ever seen him. And he's complaining about Mike and Jonathan, where he's saying Mike is so far up Jonathan's ass, it's disgusting. And he hates that the big men are going to be protected as meat shields. And uh, and he and it's interesting to see him here work trying to work with Tori. I mean, he must get the sense that he's maybe on the outs or that he's going to Tori because she has immunity and like maybe has some sway. I don't know. But given their history together, I thought it was interesting that he was going to Tori to express his frustrations of all this. 
So Romeo is working really hard to pull together numbers to get Jonathan out. Marianne doesn't really want it to be Jonathan because he's in the huge alliance and Marianne believes herself to be in that alliance. And so we kind of get like a lot of people talking about Jonathan as an easy target. And we've got Lindsay starting to throw out Marianne's name where she tells Chanel and Lydia, you got to watch out for Marianne. And she may, she kind of hints that she has a power in the game, which obviously is her beware advantage idol. And Chanel isn't buying this. Chanel, another chaotic queen, she's like, I don't buy the Marianne pitch because I think Lindsay's just trying to stay close to Jonathan. Well, she's also like, this- who is this cast member? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she thinks Lindsay's trying to stay close to Jonathan and is just throwing Marianne out of the bus. But actually, it's it's like a very logical read, but it's wrong. Right. So I thought that that was interesting. We just keep seeing Chanel in the wrong light. I mean, like there was the moment where uh, back when Vati went to tribal and she said, I'm controlling this vote and I don't even have a vote. Uh, she was wrong on that one. She puts the vote against Mike. It backfires. She lies to Omer about her decision at Shipwheel Island. That comes out. Now she's reading the situation with Lindsay, Marianne, and Jonathan wrong. So it's not looking great for Chanel. But then Omer catches wind that Jonathan's name is being thrown around. And he doesn't like that at all because, of course, we know from way back in, I think, episode one, that Omer and Jonathan are tight. And Omer's been very concerned about keeping the Orange Tribe tight together. So he's going to take some charge here and try to get Lydia voted out. So I thought that this was really fascinating because Chanel said that she was going to tribal all those weeks ago with no vote and she was going to control the vote. She didn't do it. In this case, Omer's going to tribal with no vote and he did control the vote. And it was really interesting to see him pull all of this together, how he goes to... Lydia and she's talking about how she's considering voting out Jonathan. That's all Omer needs because Lydia is supposed to be in this alliance with Jonathan. So then Omer goes to the whole alliance and says, Lydia's trying to get Jonathan out. Like we can't trust her. We've got enough people. She's not, she's not in anymore. Uh, High catches wind of this, of course, and then he has to scramble to get the vote back on Marianne. I think he just ran out of time to be totally honest, or people had heard enough about uh, Lydia trying to get Jonathan. Whatever happened there, obviously Lydia Chlamydia is going to end up going home. And so it, it felt like a battle between High and Omer and who was going to control this first big vote. And Omer won out. And I thought I was very impressed by Omer. I just don't understand why they didn't target Lindsay. They, especially from High's perspective, because it would have kept, it would have uh, given him the moved his uh, up, uh, mm-hmm. excuse me, his uh, vote. What's the term? Yeah, but what's the, it's, he would go into a steal of vote, but what was it? What is it currently? It's an added vote? Uh, extra vote. Extra vote. So yes, I just was con- confused why her name was never thrown out in all of this. And I, I yes, I, to your point about time running out, perhaps I did still still find it strange that he couldn't. It wasn't that many votes that were needed to corral, being that everyone was so split up. I just was surprised that there was no way to get things back to where I wanted them and to keep Lydia in. But I will say to the credit of the editors, um, 
when drag drag race is sort of uh and i know i make a lot of drag race comparisons but drag race has this tendency of when a queen is going to go out uh she'll all of a sudden be the focal point of the episode even though you've Mm -hmm. never heard from her and one thing i thought was really clever in this episode was there was no trail leading to lydia because you didn't hear a lot from lydia in this episode um which i thought was savvy because i think had we heard from lydia lydia all of a sudden having not really seen her on the show much it would have been an indicator that she was going home whereas instead i really do feel like like this came as a blindside to the audience in a fun way because we had no reason to think that it was going to be lydia until omar put it out there but we didn't really have reason to believe that omar was going to be successful in that based off the fact that we didn't think high was going to change his vote and it seemed from what they were depicting that high was very much in a power position as far as what he wanted was going to play out and obviously that was not the case yeah and one other thing before we go to tribal here that i want to point out is there was a two-second scene interspersed with all of the strategy going on where we see Tori talking to Jonathan, and she's basically saying, look, I just think you're too big. You're in my way. I'm going to vote for you. And she does vote for Jonathan. So I thought that that was hilarious. It's kind of her Susie moment from Gabon when Susie tells Corinne, I'm voting for you. I don't know what Tori's gaining from telling Jonathan she's going to vote for him. She doesn't even know him. And it's a really bizarre strategy, but I just thought that that was notable. So let's go to tribal council where Jeff gives us the story of his life about moving from Wichita to Seattle and reinventing himself. I wish he had taken it one step further and then talked about how he reinvented himself as Survivor Man Jeff, but we don't get that maybe next season. (laughs) Anything to say about Seattle, Jeff? Nothing to say, distinctly nothing. So, so uh, the tribe vote. Oh, there was also there was a great moment between Marianne and Drea, where Marianne's going. You know the way I see this vote is, you know, you want to move forward with the people that you trust. Whatever it was she was saying, and Drea was like, I completely disagree. And Marianne's like, Yeah, I mean, but I think we can agree on the fact that when we do this, this, and that, and Drea's like, No. Just not having any of it. I really love Drea. I think that she's emerged as such an interesting character, a great narrator, smart player, pulling together this alliance, putting people in the alliance. I think the standouts for me right now are Drea and Hai as uh, potentially having a lot of influence on this tribe and in this majority alliance. And just like seeing her stand up for herself on such a nothing issue at tribal council against Marianne, who we know is just rubbing people the wrong way and maybe Drea just doesn't want anything to do with her, I thought was funny, but also like kind of powerful. So they vote. There are shockingly no shots in the dark played, no idols or advantages played. Surely Marianne must have heard that her name was floating around out there and did not use her idol. And it, really interesting to see that because, I mean, I think last season, this is when we had Sydney go home and she played her shot in the dark. And there was a lot of idol talk at Tribal. Uh, none of that here. And Lydia is cleanly voted out. High obviously lost in the battle to control the vote. And he, in fact, goes on to vote for Lydia. So surprised that High voted for Lydia. But, Very. I think that was the biggest shock of the episode. Yeah. 
the way I read that is he must have just it, it seemed late in the day to be strategizing that he had to get the vote off Lydia and just he must have read he was not successful and didn't want to split from that majority alliance to stick by Lydia. And interesting because, you know, he had that conversation with Jonathan about like, I'll do anything that it takes to protect you. I did it for Lydia. I'll do it for you. And and he's having to make a decision here. There's like a fork in the road where it's like, okay, am I going to honor that to Jonathan? Or am I going to break from Jonathan to try to save Lydia, who's already on the outs with everybody here? And we'll just make ourselves targets in the next vote. So I thought it was a good right, read also, from But also, I mean, like, who's to say how strong this this twosome was between the two of them? Because at the end of the day, there were only four people in the tribe. And so mm-hmm. Hi and Lydia becoming, like, such a duo, I'm not, not to say they didn't genuinely like one another, but it could easily be argued that it was more, you know, they were brought together by convenience. And there's easily a scenario in which once the merge happens, Hi looks around and he's like, you know, there are several people here that I could see myself being just as close to as Lydia. So I think... I think as much as uh, it was shocking to see him vote out his number one, it's really early in the game. This is not like a Shan Ricard situation in terms of like their how together they were. They never had a final two. And we also never got a ton of development uh, uh, from Lydia as a character enough to mm-hmm. really feel the stakes. It always, she very much felt like the right hand person too high rather than they did like a dynamic duo. So I don't think this was like, yes, of course it was shocking to see him turn on his alliance, but I don't think it was like a gravitational shift yeah and chanel and tori both voted for jonathan so it's like i'm I'm very curious how that shook out we had uh, lydia and romeo voting for marianne so all four of them seem to have been on i don't know what plan uh they must not have been i mean obviously weren't filled in on where things went but seemed to have gotten filled in somewhere along the way and then just left with that vote uh and so it's really interesting to see especially from tori and chanel who are the two that have been thrown under the bus the most by their former tribe mates and uh, of course everybody wanted i think if tori didn't win immunity they very easily get rid of her I think there's uh, there's really no stakes in this tribal unless she was going to play her shot in the dark. Um, so it's just interesting to see her and Chanel left out on their own. I wonder whether they will continue to try to work together, uh, creating a little chaos, or if they even have a hope in hell of cracking this huge alliance. Well, I look forward to Tori's exit now that I have learned about her anti-vaxxer ways. So I am unstanning. It's not that I was standing, but I'm unfanning, if you will. Shall we hear some voice memos? We've got some thoughts on the episode. Hi, Sean. Hi, Evan. Love the podcast. Thanks so much for creating a survivor space for the gays, girls, and theys. I really appreciate it. Uh, This is Sam coming from Gainesville, Florida. One of my survivor unsung heroes is lesbian queen herself, Amy, from season nine. When she went home in Micronesia, I was devastated. Um, I just got done watching that Merge episode. I mean, wow, brilliant, incredible, amazing, show-stopping, spectacular, never the same, totally unique, completely not ever been done before. That is one of the best episodes of Survivor in recent memory. I will say Jeff has got to go. I did not need to know about his uh, high school experience. Uh, Romeo literally lifting up Drea in that challenge was hilarious given the last episode. And uh, I'm with you, Evan. I has not been a Jonathan stan until today. And now I just wanted to be that chicken wing. I wanted to be <laughs> that clam. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
Oh, yeah, I forgot to talk about how Jonathan shoved a chicken wing in his mouth at Applebee's and l- quite literally sucked it dry. Okay. <laughs> well, that was basically a recap of our recap. Not much to say. I mean, in terms of the episode itself, I thought it was a great merge episode. I think it's because we had so much time. Yeah, like we talked about, it did lag a little in the middle where it got a little confusing. But hey, I would take that over a 42-minute episode full of advantages and no character development right and also i thought two really engaging challenges yeah okay one more hi guys it's uh david i'm here from new york and i am here to talk about this most recent episode that we just watched uh tonight the two-hour marathon extravaganza and uh, okay i have a lot of different thoughts but the main one i want to talk about is that this this whole like turning the um hourglass moment which was a nothing burger last season and it turned out kind of be to be a nothing burger this season i've i realized when they had this reveal of what roxor is going to do how anticlimactic it is they need to make him or that person they need to make them do it in front of the other players and make the decision right then and there and let them try and sway him and let him be accountable to making the decision in front of them because that's i think where the sauce is i think that's where the drama is uh and i think that would make it a lot more fun and a lot more um enjoyable for us you know also i'm sad about lydia yeah i think that's a really great point i thought when Roxroy came into the challenge arena and Jeff had something covered up, which turned out to be the immunity necklace, which, by the way, self-sucking snake is back. Um, I thought that it was going to be the hourglass. And I thought we were going to see Roxroy have to make his choice in front of everybody. But instead, we just get this weird flashback. I, I think that that would be a great addition if they were ever to do this again, which I kind of hope they don't. Uh, that you would have to do that because I think the choice becomes much more difficult when you're facing people. Okay, we're going to leave it there. We did get some other great voice memos, but they're a little more broad, so I'm going to save them for a tree mail bag. If you want to send a voicemail in the future, you can do that by following at Drop Your Buffs Pod on Instagram, or you can continue sending them to me on Instagram directly. I will get them either way. We ask that you keep it under a minute in length. That's the Instagram limit. And the shorter, the better. More chances that you'll get on here. We are adjusting our schedule a little this season, so we are really running up against the workday. And so we have to make these quick. So unfortunately, not all the voice memos are going to make it, but we love, love, love to hear them. And I'm happy to have these conversations offline too. So please slide into our dms if you enjoyed this week's episode i want to choose another emoji to comment um on the instagram page because we were really heartened by the response to the request for whether or not you wanted drop your buffs merch which we're we're still going back and forth about we'll have an update for you eventually um but this week when we when you see this on instagram i think in honor of the consolation prize being rice can we get some rice emoji comments under the instagram if you enjoy the episode comment with some rice if you didn't enjoy the episode comment with some rice um any thoughts or feels you have express them by commenting with the bowl of rice emoji yeah we love it and wow the blue jeans were wild like i mean yeah we do need merch i I don't know i don't know what is it what do people want to see what do people even want it's rosie o'donnell on the motorcycle at the season four reunion (laughs) on a t-shirt okay perfect okay 
We were teasing a big interview for you last week, and we're still in the process of uh, rescheduling that one, but it will be coming, and we're very excited about that. Of course, the Australian <laughs> we- survivor... What? Sorry, I was just going to say, you know that meme of Christina Aguilera talking about it's Lotus coming. where it's like, it's coming. We are going to be that with this interview. It's coming, coming and I it's going to be so worth it. it. Yeah. The creative juices progress. are marinating. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is going to be that. And our Australian Survivor coverage uh, with Ricard is... Wrapped up now, uh, we just published an interview with Mark Wales from this past season. Tonight, we are interviewing the iconic legend moment, Chrissy, and that interview should be out tomorrow. So very, very excited about that because I could listen to her talk for hours. And so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that if you're an Australian Survivor fan. Of course, we will be back next week to recap whatever the next episode is, 8 of Survivor 42, and so much more fun stuff to come. So make sure you're subscribed. Hey, I saw some new reviews that were very nice and even combated the negative review we had. So thank you for that. Hey, I encourage you to leave more reviews if you have not yet left one yet. We love to see them. And until next week, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.